0: Welcome to Making Resilience Cool, a podcast based on the resilience advantage, a 12-episode series created by U.S. Resiliency Council with the generous support of Optimum Seismic. The program addresses what resilience means to our communities, businesses, and governments here and around the world. I am your host, Audrey Lou, a student at Cal Poly Slo and an aspiring architectural engineer. Working with the host of the series, Evan Reese, the Executive Director of the USRC, I've been deep diving into the rich archive of interviews with special guests from various fields such as business leaders, community leaders, architects, engineers, and experts in sustainability, sharing their insights on the importance of resilient design. Come along with me on my journey in learning more about resilient design and why it is so important in all of our lives. Episode 13 Bringing It Home. Home is where the heart is, and also where resilience is in the grand scheme of things.
1: You bet, Audrey. I'm glad we're getting to this subject. In our episode so far, we've heard about engineering, policies, sustainability, a lot of important elements in the resilience domain, but we haven't really specifically addressed the concerns of homeowners themselves. The CEA, the California Earthquake Authority, plays a central role in this space. They offer insurance for homeowners, and they also administer grant programs like Earthquake Brace and Bolt, and the recently passed California Budget Initiative, which will provide grants for seismic retrofitting of multifamily homes. Janelle Maffei is the Chief Mitigation Officer for the CEA.
2: My name is Janille Maffei, and I'm a structural engineer.
1: Her interview has some good info about this subject.
2: This is great. Now diving into Janelle's interview. Since 2011, I've been the Chief Mitigation Officer for the California Earthquake Authority and I manage both the mitigation and research pro- programs for the CEA. And uh, we're doing some really exciting things trying to reduce loss. So we're doing hazard mitigation, which is reducing earthquake loss expectations in California.
0: What is the CEA and what is its mission?
2: So the CEA is this very unique instrumentality of the state. It was created after the Northridge earthquake when our insurance companies had essentially lost their shirts. But because there's a mandatory offer law in California, they must offer earthquake insurance if they sell earthquake insurance policies.
0: Oh, yes. The Northridge earthquake. $20 billion in damages and $49 billion in economic loss. 82,000 residential and commercial units, all destroyed. That was in 1994. The CEA was created in 1996. Can
2: you tell me what the CEA was designed to do? And so the CEA was created to to come in and and take the place of this private insurance market, but it did so by bringing in participating insurers. And we now have over 25 participating insurers who, who essentially sell the CEA's earthquake insurance policy. Mitigation was part of the CEA's charge from day one. The idea was to create a mitigation or loss reduction program for Californians. So this is not for policyholders, but for all Californians. And 5% of investment income has been set aside into a loss mitigation fund to fund those mitigation efforts. So how can we make homes in
0: California more resilient? Actually, can you tell us what makes a house less
2: resilient? So we use age as a proxy to really identify the the houses with the most seismic vulnerabilities. And we use pre-1980 houses as the age group that really indicates that they might have some deficiency that would, would essentially cause them to have more damage. The reason that 1980 was selected is the 1971 San Fernando earthquake really called to attention that these single family dwellings in California were at risk for significant damage. So lots of changes happened in the late 1970s to building codes so that post 1980 houses really were designed and constructed with earthquake size, earthquake uh, codes. Pre 1980 houses, though, may have this kind of vulnerability, which is a crawl space that's not properly anchored to the foundation and has these short stud walls that surround the crawl space that are referred to as cripple walls. Right.
0: Henry Burton mentioned something similar in our previous episode. How, if an older structure were to collapse, it would be dangerous since the basement houses the MEP. So, Janil,
2: tell me more about how the lack of bracing in the crawl space could be a hazard. So, this lack of anchorage and lack of bracing in the crawl space unfortunately leads to the house sliding or toppling off the foundation. So, that's the most prevalent. We estimate there are over a million houses in areas, just in areas of high hazard, that have this crawl space or cripple wall vulnerability. There are other vulnerabilities such as houses that have um, large openings, for example, garage doors with living space above them. They just don't have sufficient elements in the house to resist earthquake forces. So we call that a living space over garage or house over garage vulnerability. And then there are other houses, particularly in the the kind of northwestern corner of of California, that are built on pier and post. So in areas where there's a lot more moisture, they would raise them up, and then they wouldn't have any walls around the crawl space, just these piers and posts. And those can also topple off the foundation. So there's just a few. Masonry chimneys are also, of course, a problem in in earthquakes. But age can be used as a proxy. Okay, so everyone knows that this is a
0: life-threatening position to be in but knowledge
2: alone doesn't do the job. How can we push homeowners to prioritize resilience? So the Earthquake Brace and Bolt program provides up to $3,000 to qualified homeowners. And to qualify, you must be in one of our zip codes. We started in areas of highest hazard in California, and we've been expanding every year since our pilot in 2013-2014. And that $3,000 goes a long way because on average in California, this retrofit is about $5,500. And if you, you don't need the plywood, you just need the bolts. It actually is very close to that $3,000 amount. So it's turned out to be, I think, a good, it's a good tipping point. It's enough to, to kind of nudge people. We have some people who, who knew that there was this problem. They've always wanted to do it. And, uh, the wonderful thing about it is that afterwards, um, so many of them tell me that they sleep better at night. Wow, with all these benefits, why don't homeowners automatically resort to choosing resilience? There must be more incentives. How about taxes? That's right, so a few years ago, the state legislature, California's legislature, took care of the taxability of our grants at the state level but uh, obviously they couldn't take care of federal taxes. And so we do have legislation pending uh, in Washington. It's been introduced and uh, it's got a lot of bipartisan support. It was extended to include other hazards such as as wildfire and uh, wind damage. And so um, that allows us to to get the support of a lot of, of states that are really dealing with the same issues, which is if you come up with a grant program like ours and utilize local or state funding, it's taxable at the federal level. Now, if I use FEMA funding, that's perhaps, you know, it's Stafford Act funding that is not taxable at the federal level. So we think we have a a good chance with this legislation. Doesn't seem to be a a lot of um, uh, opposition to it. It's just a matter of, of course, um, trying to to get it through the, you know, the D.C. system.
0: The word on the street is that there is a new bill supporting the seismic retrofitting of multifamily homes, AB 1721. What's
2: this all about? So the, the $250 million that um, will be allocated to this program, this multifamily soft story retrofit grant program that doesn't have a name yet is very exciting. Um, the, the multifamily program uh, is, is very different from Earthquake Brace and Bolt. The funding is different. The funding is coming from the state of California and it is for this uh, a little different kind of a structure, but, but very much involved with the same purpose which is to allow people to be first and foremost safe and then be able to stay in their homes, more likely to stay in their homes after an earthquake. We already have seen in California severe housing shortages, um, all kinds of impacts on the housing from the pandemic, The last thing we need is for a disaster, which is a man-made disaster, which is what an earthquake is, to put people out on the street. So it's so exciting to be able to uh, think about managing this program and putting this money into buildings through a grant to make Californians safer and more resilient in an earthquake. That's so exciting.
0: Do you think the residents of California are aware of the actual risks of an earthquake?
2: Well it, it is interesting because I think you know, like everything it, it there's a spectrum of of understanding of earthquake risk um, and then sometimes the way that we deal with risk affects how we we take in information so there's that's a person in California who says it will never happen to me so they're aware of earthquakes but they somehow are, you know are able to rationalize that this is something Low probability, so it's not going to happen to me. And obviously there are, you know, kind of the, the early adopters that, um, that recognize risk and want to do something about it. And so they'll retrofit a home if it's appropriate and they'll insure it. Uh, and then there's kind of everything in between. And so when we are looking to provide information to homeowners, we're trying to, to meet that diversity of thought and, and um, that diversity of an understanding of risk.
0: Growing up in California, I knew about the risk and dangers of an earthquake. But as I got older, it seems like it became more normalized. People don't seem to be as focused on it. If someone were to tell me a tornado is about to hit California, I would take more notice than if someone were
2: to say, the
0: big one is coming. How do you address the big one when you are talking to people?
2: So when I speak to Californians, um, and I am predominantly, you know, along the coast in the San Andreas Fault Zone, I say we live in earthquake country. And so the idea that you're two kilometers or two miles from the fault or 25 miles from the fault, um, you know, we used to call it zone four, you know, essentially the coast of California where something like 85% of our population lives is in earthquake country. And so um, certainly when I talk to people, um, you know, I think that that my message resonates with them. The key is that I, you know, one person can't travel all around the state and talk to everyone. And so, And then, of course, we we all know that we need to have a consistent message, a consistent message. If we live in earthquake country, you may have vulnerabilities. There's some simple tools to help you figure that out. And then there's some simple mitigation measures that we can help you with.
0: So would a rating system help? Could it help with making people more aware of
2: their vulnerabilities in the face of a major seismic event? So I think that, that currently there really isn't any any way for a homeowner to really understand their vulnerabilities unless they can go through the material that we've printed, the material we have online, the material we have in guidelines, or if they hire a structural engineer or a contractor who's in the know. Um, and then when they do get that information, um, sometimes it's not consistent. And so what a rating system would do is have a consistent vocabulary of vulnerabilities, a consistent vocabulary of how to mitigate those, and then, you know, a rating system kind of also gives you the ability to prioritize.
0: Other than the rating system created by U.S. Resiliency Council, what kind of material and information is there about other ways of rating resilience?
2: So FEMA created a, an excellent document in the 1990s called FEMA P50 that was originally intended just for Los Angeles to provide a rating system of seismic vulnerabilities on houses. And then the best thing about it, it was it was uh, alphabetic. So A, B, C, D. And the idea was if you had a, a C, C minus D, that it, it immediately told you what the vulnerability was and how you mitigate that. And if you mitigated it, how you would change that that score so for example you had that c because you didn't have anchor bolts you mitigated that and you moved up to a b and then it described the kind of damage that you would have and so it was a very clean clear system and so you know we we do support a rating system let's bring it back home can you talk to me
0: about what this means for people in their own homes and how this kind of system can impact
2: their decisions? The, the ideal situation would be that a person who's, who owns a house, a person who's buying a house, would have very clear information about seismic vulnerabilities, how to mitigate them, and just exactly what the damage would look like and how that would affect their families. You know can they stay can they shelter in place um you know we saw houses that came off their foundation in the napa earthquake that were not yet reoccupied two years later in fact that was the average and so if you if you know that you have that kind of damage you know you've been rated a c and that's what you're going to see that's the downtime that you're going to have then you can start to make educated decisions about how to mitigate those vulnerabilities i
0: think this would make resilience more interesting to be able to use that empirical information to create a more resilient plan. I'm curious on what you were saying about families. I understand that you had a bit of a perspective shift on how you view resilience in terms of families and the human element. Can you tell me about how the 1994 Northridge earthquake affected you and your career in the structural engineering industry?
2: That was a had tremendous impact to me. And in fact, changed really my my entire thinking about earthquake damage. So the, the intent was a structural engineer to go in and to evaluate earthquake damage and then make recommendations for repairs. But unlike going into a commercial building, you know, you are meeting not only the building owner, but a homeowner. And and that's different. The relationship between a homeowner and the structure is very different than between, you know, a commercial building owner and, and the building. This is their home. This is where maybe they raise their children where they want to retire. And I ran into circumstances where, you know, I met a man whose wife had just gone into a, um, a senior care facility for the first time in their 50-year marriage, or a, another home where, you know the mother was clearly going through cancer treatment and asked me to explain why their 10-year-old son was safe to sleep in their bedroom. And I, I recognized that, you know, for them, you know life was was not easy at that moment, and that, that earthquake dropped in on a very difficult time in their life. It's like, try and pick a, the best day of your life for an earthquake to drop in. And you just you simply won't find one um, for all kinds of reasons. And so what I learned was that the, the house is never the client. The client is a person. And and the relationship between that home and that family is very, very important. And to, to have your, your entire life disrupted in an earthquake where you have to move your family out of the home, find a place for them to live, find a you know a way to get your children back to, to school in that same community so that they can retain that community and be part of the the recovery of that community while living somewhere else. It's so true that the home is where
0: the heart is. The environment you live in, your home, definitely plays a huge part in your core memories and your own personal resilience. I know how important childhood memories have been for me. I still get goosebumps when I drive past my childhood home. It brings back a core memory of playing with my grandpa making newspaper boats for me to float along the water stream on rainy days. I can't imagine what it would be like if memories like those were about traumatic events rather than joyful ones. I can see why your experience in Northridge had such an impact on you. Tell me about how this translates to commercial buildings.
2: Well, you know, there's a... a, a careful balance between commercial and residential buildings. And when I talk to some of the high-tech building owners or people representing them, I'll say, you know, like some of the Apples and Googles will have office buildings that are designed to some of the highest standards. They have very sophisticated facilities managers, and they've made very sophisticated decisions so that their buildings will uh, perform at a very high level after an earthquake. They want to be almost like a hospital. And then all of their employees go and get in their cars and drive home to these pre 1980 houses, you know, in the evening. And this is a you know highly educated, sought after um, population of workers that, frankly, can pick up stakes and go somewhere else if if they have so much damage that really default makes more sense. And so there's that relationship of. That you as, a, as a, a building owner and as a business owner need to be thinking about how prepared, how resilient your workforce is. Are there specific cities that are leading in this effort in mitigation programs? That's why San Francisco and Los Angeles have made some of the decisions to go ahead with these mitigation programs. They recognize that a huge population in their cities were renters. And, you know, renters are, are transient. They can pick up and move to another rental property. So um, the other thing is that, you know, a, a person who's working in, in your commercial space um, gets up in the morning, goes off, goes into a building. There's a presumption of safety. You know, there's a presumption that certainly my government, my community wouldn't let me be in a building that, that that's dangerous. And, of course, we in the structural engineering world know that you know, we've done structural triage and we've tried to pick off the, you know, the worst, you know, the the weak performers, the unreinforced masonry. We started with hospitals. We're now looking at soft story concrete. Um, but there's so many of them and there's so and there's a lot of money involved in that, that um, that it takes time. And so for someone to be informed about where they take their child to school, where they decide to, to dine in the evenings, where they spend most of their time during the day in terms of their work, to have some sense of somebody who knows has checked that, has given it a rating, and, and I can depend or rely on that rating to know that I'm going to be there in the evening able to get in my car and go back to my retrofitted house where my family is protected. So there's a, there's a very close relationship in all of that.
0: Evan, my deep dive with Janiel was great. She elaborated on incentives to push the resilience movement forward and spoke about her personal experiences as a structural engineer visiting people in their homes after the Northridge earthquake. She also gave a little introduction to the new Assembly Bill 1721, which helps owners of multi-family homes retrofit their buildings.
1: I thought you'd find her perspective helpful. You know, it's unfortunate that homeowners and residential landlords can sometimes get lost in a larger conversation around resilience. When it comes down to it, they're often the ones who need the most support. All of what we do is about preventing harm and suffering in the event of natural disasters, and getting people on their feet after one happens. It doesn't matter what size the building is, the impact of its resilience can be felt by the whole community.
0: Cool! So who's going to be our next interview?
1: Take a listen to Jonathan Cohen's interview. He's the owner and operator of Society Hotel in Portland, Oregon. The building's over a hundred years old and is built of unreinforced masonry, one of the most dangerous building types in an earthquake. Jonathan had to do a complex job, a top to bottom retrofit of the entire building in order to make it safe for its residents.
0: Great, looking forward to it. For more resources and information about Janiel Maffei and the California Earthquake Authority, or for links to the Resilience Advantage series, check out our website. Thanks for joining me and listening to Making Resilience Cool, a podcast based on the 12-episode Resilience Advantage series created by the USRC with the generous support of Optimum Seismic. Join me next time as I delve more deeply into the incredible archives of interviews from that series with engineers, architects, innovators, business leaders, and community leaders talking about everything you could possibly want to learn about what resilience really means. Next episode, I'll be deep diving into the Resilience Advantage interview with Jonathan Cohen, the owner and operator of the Society Hotel in Portland, Oregon.